for another week and we are so excited you're here with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock with She Walks and we've been talking about uh, transformational leadership but really about disruptive leadership change model and uh, we last week we talked and we said that we hope that you all would send us some people that we might want to interview so we haven't gotten those people yet but until then we'll continue to talk about some of the articles that we've read and some of the things that are going on around the nation and today we're going to talk primarily about the from the perspective of how uh, the disruptive leadership change model opens up and brings a lot of the quote unquote othered, O-T-H-E-R-E-D, people in to be able to do something. Because before, lots of people such as myself and Carly as woman, and you know, we would be left out. We would not be considered as um, uh, real leaders. And so this disruptive model opens it up and you need everybody in this process. So Carly, let's talk about that this week. Is that okay with you? Sounds perfect. I think along that same line, I think the reason that so many othered people are able to engage in this disruptive change model so well and also be extremely effective leaders is because there's a level of adaptability there, but also mm-hmm. you have witnessed firsthand the issues. So you're not having to go and convince someone, hey, this is a problem in in my community, or this is a problem that I've experienced personally. You're not having to convince anyone of that because you have lived that experience. So you get to just kind of start with that knowledge already and build a system that is going to help address that issue. And I think that's a really powerful thing. Yeah. Somebody said to me once, you know, they were talking about differences in people and and um, and we were talking about some of those things that you and I've talked about too, about how you could be in a meeting, you can say something and nobody hear you, but let Joe Q Public say it and everybody hears it. Well, for people of color or other people, often that's what life is like. Mm-hmm. That's the lived experience. That's what every day is like, is like you trying to get someone to say, to hear that what you have to say is value added and that it matters. And that's a hard thing to explain. So when we're going to talk about these women, some of these women that are coming up, how they're changing, you know, their industry, it's unfortunate that we had to wait until these kinds of disruptive challenges we were faced with because they could have done it all along and they were doing it all along. They just weren't recognized for doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about over many shows so far about sort of the theory of disruptive change and what that leadership model looks like, what that change model looks like. And so we wanted to give some practical examples of what that looks like in action and lift up some of these incredible women who are doing this work. Um, So this comes from a NASDAQ article um, titled Women Leaders on How They Are Disrupting Their Industries. Um, So we're going to highlight some of the women from this article. Um, the first one is Rosario Casas. She is the co-founder and CEO of XR Americas, which is a company looking to improve the future of workforce training and contri- contribute to safer field operations. But one of the things that she's doing that I think is amazing is her whole mission is around technology accessibility and making sure that it's inclusive and making sure that everyone has access to it, right? Um, And I think we definitely saw that highlighted during the pandemic. I know that we saw that with our students. We saw that with ourselves. We all had to learn how to use Zoom and, you know, learn all these new technologies. Um, Not everyone had access to the same level of computer system or, you know, the same level of Wi-Fi. And so being able to 
problem solve that and make sure that that's accessible for everyone is a really powerful thing. And I think I think one of the things that she says, she said, um, I forget how she said it. My greatest wish is that we are not leaving anyone behind. Yes. And and that was kind of if we were going to still operate in a world that was inclusive, especially during COVID and when we needed Zoom and Google and all those other kinds of uh, platforms, when we needed that, we realized that there were some people that we had left behind. Now, this was not new because if you were part of the people of color, if you were part of that group, Black, Latinx, indigenous, whatever, you knew that there was a digital divide. It was not like you had to tell anybody that there was a digital divide. You knew because you did not have access to the same technological resources that everybody else did. But when we all were trying to operate that way and you were the person who, the janitor that they needed to call in to work (laughs) at a specific time, or you were the, the person that needed to set things up you had to have the same access to be able to do that. And so I think people like uh, Rosario is changing the way that we see that we all need the same access to do the same work or to do the same work differently, but we still need the access for it. Absolutely. And, you know, in the way that our modern world works, you have to have access. I mean, think about how limited you are when you don't have it. And we see, we see that a lot in our area because we are Appalachian. We are in the middle of Appalachia and, of course, in the mountains. And, you know, Wi-Fi is not the best most places. And it's really hard for people to get good Internet mm-hmm. um, in the mountains. And, you know, we saw students who, when we all got sent home for COVID, you know, they were driving to the local McDonald's to attend class because there was reliable Wi-Fi there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is that's a very real reality for so many people. And, you know, it looks like Rosario is taking steps to sort of like close that gap. And I think that's incredibly important. Yeah. And, 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 you know, she says as a Latina, and that's her self-describe, her self-description, she says that she realized that technology had to be accessible and it had to be affordable, but also it had to be centered around people. Right. Because what good is it if everybody doesn't have access to it? And and I think sometimes, Carly, my age will tell, but I'm I'm thinking sometimes now, I mean, my niece, who, my great niece, who is almost two years old, she's next month, she'll be two. But I mean, she knows how to work a remote. <laughs> you know, she will bring the remote to you and tell you that she wants to watch Dave and Ava. I mean, she's made all of these connections <laughs> that it, she can get on the phone. She'll do FaceTime and talk back to people, you know, in her own language. She's a little little short on language right now, but in her own language where, I mean, that's her whole world. She will never know a world that doesn't include technology. Mm-hmm. Never. Absolutely. Yeah. Never. She and, and there are others. I mean, I would imagine what probably people who are about maybe what anywhere from 11 to 15 have never known a world without technology. Yeah. I mean, grew up with smartphones and yeah. Yeah. Got them early, got them when they were like nine years old, you know, and stuff. And, and my age, I was like, of course we didn't, we didn't even always have computers. Let me just say how old I am, Carly, you're not, but we didn't even always have access to computers. And when I was going up, growing up, computers were these huge, big frames, you know, things that everybody used. And we heard stories about everybody would have a computer in their pocket and we laughed, you know, because here we were with desktops, we weren't even using laptops at the time. And so, you know, it was crazy to think and now everybody has a computer in their pocket yeah but but how do we make that accessible how do we make it affordable and I think that's what Rosario is trying to do as she says her vision for the future and if she's able to do that and 
even from a global perspective, because she said she did some work in Colombia for many years. And so this, uh, the way we look at technology is not just located only here in America, but I've got friends in Australia. And, and so we FaceTime one another and it's great to look at each other and talk and not have to pay a million dollars. When I lived in Australia with those friends, I had to pay $2 a minute to talk on the phone with a delayed kind of response. So, uh, you know, I hope that she continues to disrupt her, the industry by making technology people-centered. That's almost oxymoronic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Technology think... people-centered. And and so, I mean, if she's able to do that or as she's able to do that, I can see that as being revolutionary. Yeah, I think it's incredible work. So I'm excited to see, you know, where that goes for sure. We also wanted to talk about um, Christina Blacken. She is the founder and chief narrative strategist for The New Quo, which is a leadership and inclusion consultancy that uses behavioral science-based strategies to transform behavior and build inclusive communities. Her firm is doing some really cool work. Basically, um, she she says that you know most training organizations focus on external symptoms of bias, so mm-hmm. um, recruitment, processes, procedures, and she, her group focuses on the internal and psychological challenges that come from that. So I think that's incredible. Um, and again, you know, that whole inclusive piece, you know, we've talked a lot about technology because I think COVID brought that to the forefront of everyone's mind and everyone's conscious. But along with COVID, we've also been seeing the Black Lives Matter movement and mm-hmm. the protests, right? And so this equity and inclusion piece has also been brought to the forefront of people's minds and kind of our collective psyche. And so again, now is the time for some disruptive change there. Well, and I, and I think it that is it's going to be hard. And I, I'm sure she's probably going to use storytelling and some things like that. I've been using some of that lately in my diversity, equity, inclusion training, been, been trying to actually bring to the forefront, you know, storytelling, the narrative, how much that really matters. When people hear stories about what's going on, they have a tendency to be able to see it better. So for her to say, you know, not looking so much bias from uh, uh, the external, you know, like who do you have, who don't you have more, I guess it's kind of along the lines of the why, you know, why does these, why do these external things exist? as opposed to acknowledging that they exist and say, we want to do something about them. I guess you get to the root of it by asking why do they exist? Absolutely. And understanding that the solutions are not necessarily always like, well, let's bring in more people, but let's fix it first before we bring in more people into this environment. Right. Let's figure out why this environment is not um, conducive to people wanting to work for this company. Right. And I think that's incredibly powerful she talks a lot about like, it's the daily communication. It's the, you know, assumptions we hold about each other, you know, those sorts of things through storytelling, like you said, is that powerful Mm -hmm. tool to be able to challenge those assumptions, to work through those narratives and to come to this work with a level of humility of like, okay, there are things that I need to deconstruct for sure. Right. And, and making, uh, changing how we do things and, and I think she said something about making it stick. She mm. said, build inclusive habits that stick because, you know, in our work that we did when we worked together with diversity, equity, inclusion, it wasn't belonging then, it's belonging now. But when we worked in that area, some of the things that we heard, some of the feedback we got was, okay, we did one class, now what? Mm-hmm. You know, so there needs to be more than just, you know, you looking at systems and saying, yeah, they're inequitable. Yep, yeah, they sure are. There needs to be something else like, here's how they became 
you know, inequitable, or this is the effect that it had on someone, you know, this is the story, this is trying to seek for that empathy. This is why as this happened, this is the effect that it had on somebody. I think that's, that's more important than just, we have, like, say, if we were telling the story uh, at Emory Henry, and we were telling the narrative about how many African-American women we have or don't have in upper management, you know, to tell that right. story, to look at the demographics and to say, well, based on the amount of people that are in this area, blah, 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 we're, we've got one, we're doing okay. Those are the external kinds of things. And so we could start to look at bias and recruitment and those kinds of things. But what about the other stories? What about the other things that may have contributed to not having Black women or women of color? You know, I think that's why the narrative is so important, you know, to tell how things happen so that we can we can look at them as realities, not just numbers. We, we deal in numbers far too much, especially when we want to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. And we want to uh, look at it. We want to look at it from the numerics. How do we and we did that with affirmative action uh, and we see what how affirmative action worked. Affirmative action worked for white women more than it worked for any of the other people that it was designed to work for. So just because we we are looking at external systems doesn't mean that we are part of the change. And so again, not to go back to the disruptive change model, but we're saying how we can't do this any longer. And I think that may be what uh, Christina uh, is saying. She's saying that we've got to look at this, uh, uh, the way we do business so that we can build inclusive communities in a better way. We got to change the narrative, but we say that all the time, but I think she's saying that let's change the narrative. And she calls herself what a chief narrative strategist. Yes. <laughs> she is saying, I'm going to be one of those people that is willing to do the work that changes the narrative. Absolutely. And to your point too, I think that's exactly what Christina's saying, right? Is that when you focus so much on the numbers and recruitment and, you know, percentages, you lose that human element and you, you, you lose the storytelling and you, you kind of lose that piece of it. Um, and when you're so focused on the recruitment and that side of things, that's where like that tokenism piece comes in, right? Well, we've checked the box, so we're yeah. good. And it's like, well, no, it's <laughs> not good enough, you know? And I think that's so important. And she, she says in her vision for the future that, um, you know, we can't solve these complex problems in silos or with one singular method. And mm -hmm. she's exactly right. I mean, this these are complex issues, complex conversations, and it's going to require lots of different solutions to come together for the for the solution, right? So it's not one of those, well, we just need to do this or we just need to fix this, right? It's going to be a lot of different stuff that needs to be done um, in order to truly create inclusive environments. I, I, I was reading this morning in my devotional time, and I never get it right. RGB, she's Ruth. Ruth What's Bader the, Ginsburg. RBG, whatever. Yeah. I always get it mixed up. But I, I was reading in my devotional time. And so they were they were talking about the quote where she said that, you know, she wouldn't be satisfied until there were 12 female justices. And somebody said, well, that's, that would be wrong to have that many. And she said, why? We've always had 12 men. Right. You exactly. know, and, and sometimes it's just telling your story. It's just putting it in a perspective that looks at what somebody could see immediately, that if all the justices were women, oh, something would be wrong with that. But look how many years people saw that all the justices were men and they didn't see anything wrong with it. Exactly. Yes. So how do you raise that level 
of knowledge. And I think she talks about it from the narrative intelligence so that more people can make equitable decisions and build those communities, but build communities that stick. And I would add to that, build communities that last. I guess she's probably saying stick, last, same thing. But, you know, if we can, if we can do more than just do the tokenism, Mm-hmm. If we can do more than just one. And, and you know, recently I talked about this, Carly, and um, I got in a little trouble. I'll probably get in a little trouble now, but talked about the white gaze. And, uh, and I think this goes into this whole diversity, equity, inclusion kind of piece. And one of the things that I talked about was, you know, I think um, who did it earlier? Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about it when he talked about double consciousness for black people. You know how you've got this two worlds and you got this white world, you've got this black world. You've got to be conscious of it at all times. You've got to be able to move in and out of all those worlds. And then I think Toni um, Tony Morrison talked about it when she talked about when they asked her, well, why don't you write about white people? Don't you ever want to write about white people? As if to say that the only real writing would be about white people. And then um, I always get her mixed up to Kelly Brown Douglas or Kelly Douglas Brown, whichever she wrote about it from a theological perspective. And, and I think, you know, when we talk about the way that dominant people want our world to look, it makes them feel comfortable. They feel good about it. And when she's talking about a new quo, you know, she's changing the status quo. And and when these kinds of things happen, um, and, and I have coined a new term. I love it. Carly, I know you love it when I coin these terms like iconic racism. And and my newest term is the tyranny of the white gaze, because there is violence that is attached to if if things don't look the way that the dominant group wants it to look, then there will be violence that will be inflicted upon someone. And it happens every single time, every single time. If it looks like it's out of kilter, then trying to make that right will involve violence. And so I said all that to say that you know, these narratives, how do we change these stories? And I think we start by attacking the white gaze. We start at looking at the lens from which the dominant people look and feel comfortable and we disrupt that. Yeah, we say that that it can't look like that. If you look around the room and there is one, one, if there are a whole room full of white people and one other person, in particular, one black, brown, indigenous, and that looks okay to you, something is wrong with that. That needs to be disrupted. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, I think too, that, like you said, with that white gaze is if you've never had that challenged or mm-hmm. you've always walked into a room where it's full of white people, right? you aren't going to immediately look at that and go, there's something wrong here. Just like Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg said about, you know, the Supreme Court being full of women, right? And it takes you switching your narrative. And like Christina says, building those habits that stick to be able to say, okay, I see what's happening here, right? And that's a difficult thing to do. And I think it it requires that narrative piece. It requires Mm -hmm. hearing those stories and listening to people who have different lived experiences, who have many, many times been the only one in the room. And, you know, I think you have to have that narrative piece in there. It's so important. I think so too. And I think that it helps people to kind of see something outside of the system because systems operate in and of themselves. In sociology, we call it sui generis. And we say that it operates in and of itself. Like you don't even know how it happens. It's just there. So systems operate that way and they feel and seem normal to everybody. And so at some point, changing the narrative or inviting people in to see something different. Like when she talked about daily communication, uh, your stereotypes, your biases, your assumptions, all Mm -hmm. those things that we hold when, when you're called in on those, 
it can really be an aha moment. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to you're going to see it as an aha moment, but it really can be an aha moment. And I think we need so many more of those aha moments so that we can get to a place where, you know, we have places and spaces that look more inclusive and not just outside, but they really are more inclusive. And then that gets to where when we talked about disruptive leadership earlier, where it gets to where now we in- invite those people and their narrative and what they bring to the table and their way of looking at things and their way of knowing their epistemology becomes worth something. It's no longer anti to whatever it is that the system has offered. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about, you know, this disruptive change model requires your ego to take a backseat. Um, Mm -hmm. and, so does this work. This inclusive work, the anti-racist work requires your ego to take a backseat because you're exactly right. We all have areas in which we need to learn. And those of us who are white have many, many, many areas <laughs> where we need to learn. And it requires that, you know, we are going to get it wrong and we are going to be called in for it, right? Or called out for it either way. Yeah. Um, and that requires that we learn from that. And you cannot get defensive and let your ego like take over in those moments. Right. And that's not easy to do, but it's vital if you're going to do this work. And I think that's a great connection to that disruptive change piece because disruptive change also requires your ego to take a backseat. And some of us are better at checking our egos at the door than others. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was in a workshop the other week with uh, Brian Tillman. I don't know if you know his stuff. He's United Methodist. So it's kind of in the United Methodist church, but he um, he's doing his dissertation now at Candler or something. And he was doing a workshop and um, he was talking about the implicit bias test. He's a black man. And he said, if y'all ever tell this, I'll say that I didn't say it. We all laughed about it. But he said, when he took the implicit bias test, guess what? He found out that he had bias against black men. And everybody was like, and he said, no, you shouldn't be that because anywhere that white supremacy has been the meal that's been served up every day, it has affected everyone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so he was talking about how how we have to really raise our level of knowledge about our biases because it's 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 the system has made us all buy into that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's where that internalized sexism, internalized uh, racism, internalized homophobia, like all Mm -hmm. of that stuff comes from the system, the system that we've all been raised in. So absolutely. Yeah, he's right. We shouldn't be shocked. (laughs) Yeah. And and everybody was like, you could hear a gasp in the room when he said that's what his bias, one of his biases were. And everybody was, and he said, no, 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 don't. And he told them why, you know, which really that was like, you know, confronting a system to say that a system of white supremacy affects all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not just limited to white people. You know, I mean, it affects brown and black people it tremendously. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, we've done a decent job, I think, in the past a little bit, talking about that through the lens of patriarchy, right? About, mm-hmm. you know, patriarchy is a system that affects all of us of all genders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it affects men too, you know, because they are within the system. And so, you know, a lot of times people will use that to push back against feminism by saying, you know, well, men struggle with this or they, you know, men have higher suicide rates. We know that's true. 
But we're not looking at why that is. It's because we're operating within this patriarchal system. And so the the dismantling of patriarchy benefits everybody. And that's a conversation that needs to be, again, spread through to our anti-racist conversations, our conversations of inclusion around LGBT populations, right? All of that needs to continue to work through that same lens. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, again, recently I was at a workshop and we were talking about the whole LGBTQ plus challenge, especially in the United Methodist Church that we're facing since we're we're experiencing a splintering. But somebody is finally saying, or more people, I should say, are finally saying that are part of the LGBT plus community is that you they can't win unless we all win, you know, and it's impossible to fight for LGBTQ plus rights and not fight for the rights of all people. Right. And and we're just now starting to to do that. So I'm thinking about ways that uh, as uh, this what was her name Christina could change that status quo and get the new quo would be if we all quote unquote uh, who are affected by some of these same issues were fighting for the same same resolve yeah. instead of it being singular issues. And I think that's what happens in intersectionality. Some of the researchers suggest that there is no singular issue. Right. You know, but it's intersectional and we've got to quit looking at it like a single axis perspective and and seeing that it's multi-axis. Yeah, absolutely. And that is um, something that, like you said, the research suggests and show, you know, history has shown us that too, right? That we all have to come together. Yes, you know, we may have our different things that we are particularly focused on, like, you know, anti-racist work or anti-homophobia work, right? Feminist mm-hmm. work. But if you are truly intersectional and inclusive, you have to do all of that work at the same time, right? And support each other as we all do that work. Um, yeah, because what do we say? I mean, it's an old adage, but oppression anywhere is oppression everywhere. You, yes. you know what I mean? Right. Or it, it, it just is, you know? And But when we start looking at it and look at me and look at mine, then we miss the opportunity for, for the engine to start to turn with more people on the bus. We, we miss that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And that support is crucial. And I think you're exactly right too, that, you know, this whole new quo, like Christina is, is working towards with her organization. It's truly intersectional. It's truly inclusive, which means that, you know, we are looking at every single facet mm-hmm. and that also includes disabilities. It mm-hmm. also includes, um, neurodivergence. It also includes um, socioeconomic status. There are a lot of intersectional pieces to be, you know, talked about um, and to be included in this conversation. And I think that's why she's like, we cannot solve these problems in silos and there's not a singular like fix to the problem, right? It, there, it's very, the the solution has to be intersectional because the problem is intersectional. Right. And, and we have to be willing to uh to tell the story and to tell everybody's story you you know um because when we just tell it like it's one person then it's it it, it becomes the silo it becomes isolated but when we tell it like it's many people then we start to change the status quo mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's no yeah. longer just my four and no more this is broader this is a bigger this is a larger spectrum and so we're able to see it that way and i think that that's really powerful so i i hope she keeps calling us to task to look at it from a behavioral science perspective because you know carly sometimes just why do we i this is something that i've never understood I've never, I now know from a system how it works, but psychologically, 
mentally. I have never understood how racism, homophobia, all of the isms, how they have sustained themselves and continue to sustain themselves because something is inherently wrong with them. And it, does that mean that something is inherently wrong with the people who promote it? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we've, there's lots of studies about, it is a learned behavior. We know mm-hmm. this, which mm-hmm. means that if it was to stop being taught both by the system and other individuals, it would cease to exist. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that that whole behavioral piece is extremely important because that's where that comes from. These biases we have didn't just come out of thin air. Right? Oh, right, right. They exist. They they've come from somewhere. Either either someone that you were raised by, you know, the the media you consume, the system you're operating within, whatever the case may be. Those biases didn't just spring up out of thin air. And so, in order for us to really deconstruct them, that means we're going to have to go to the root of where those things came from. Yeah, and I remember when we used to teach diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I mean, and we would talk about biases and where they come from and their historical, historical frame of reference and the root. And but how do we? And I hope this is what Christina's doing. How do we take these situations and shift it, change the narrative? Because if we say that all biases are not bad, if we say that some of them were for survival, you know, blah 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 blah. Okay, now that we've survived, what are we going to do with it? Right. Yeah. How do we how do we change it? You know, now that we know that green eyed people aren't monsters. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Now yeah. that we know that for a fact, what are we going to do with it? Right. You know, yeah. Well, these women are doing phenomenal things and we have many more that we want to share with you. And uh, we didn't get to the one. I think we're out of time, aren't we, Carly? We are. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe maybe we can look at a couple more next week. Yeah, I definitely think we should continue this conversation because um, I love the I love theory and talking about the theory behind change. But seeing these women actually practically doing that is really incredible. We appreciate you all so much for being with us as always. And again, like we said, you know, if you all have anybody that you think would be um, worth talking to who is doing this work Um, we would love to hear any suggestions that you may have so thank you so much for joining us and we will see you all again next week all right bye